we couldn't believe what we were what we were what we were living. Uh, a lot of deaths in the early days, like four or five deaths per day. It was like unbelievable thing. It was very sad times. Hello and welcome back to the Global Kidney Care Podcast. My name is Roberto Pequat Filho, and I'm the co-chair of the ISN Education Working Group. And together with Dr. Smita Sinha, a nephrologist from Salford Royal in the UK, we will be interviewing the authors of a recent publication in KI Reports, one of the official journals of the International Society of Nephrology. This interesting article describes the experience of dealing with the COVID-19 infection in patients with kidney disease in a large hospital in Madrid, Spain. Joining us for this discussion, we have two nephrologists and co-authors of the manuscript, Drs. Hernando Trujillo and Angel Sivillano. Smita, welcome. Thank you, Roberto. Um, so really looking forward to hearing from the authors of this paper. I read it with interest. It's always good to hear about different experiences in other units, particularly when you've collected such granular data. Um, so it should give us a real insight into what happens to um, these patients. So I'm looking forward to the. I know, and perhaps more than the paper, I think uh, when you read it, sometimes it gave me chills as, a, as an nephrologist, you know, just to try to understand how you guys felt when this thing started to happen. You know, in, the, in other countries, we, we were hit by the disease a bit uh, later than, than you guys. So you were like really involved in the crisis a bit earlier on. I wonder if you could just share with us how how did you feel about you know seeing those first cases of patients in the hospital? First, I would like to thank you for the invitation. Of course, we're pleased and honored to be here. We're very happy to share our findings. Mm -hmm. uh, everything is coronavirus now. And no, I, I would like to start uh, by uh, explaining uh, a little bit uh, about our environment. So we work in a very big hospital in Madrid, we have, it's a single, uh, it's a tertiary care center with 1,300 beds, and we serve a population of approximately 450,000 in the urban area of Madrid. So, big hospital. Uh, in addition, we as a as a nephrology department have uh, two, uh, approximately 200. And eight, 212 hemodialysis patients and 39, 40 peritoneal dialysis patients. We have a big floor with 40 beds, more or less. And also we do a lot of transplants, uh, between 100 and 120 transplant, transplants per year. Uh, we have in the clinic in active follow-up approximately 200 and 500, 2,500 kidney transplant patients. So that's a little bit of... of who we are. Regarding the question, uh, when the pandemic began, the hospital changed the way as every big hospital, I mean, in every part of the world, we had to adjust to the, to the situation. So internal medicine decided to uh, make like groups that were represented by nephrologists, uh, people from endocrinology, I mean other specialties including even surgeons. Uh, so we divided the work and we assumed a lot of, a lot of patients with coronavirus disease, not only nephrologic patients but also from the general population. So that was like, um, our. this has been our, our story, our, the way we, ha we are living this uh, since, the, since, the, since the pandemic began. And I, 
I, le I left to Dr. Sevillano if he wants to add something. Yes, just, just to say that the, like Nando was, was talking about, in the worst weeks of the pandemic, uh, we had around 70 patients in our church, in a forest church. We had to change the, our organization for the beginning. The clinics were uh, closed, really, and only the really uh, necessary uh, patient who want to, to be followed up for, uh, early was seen in clinics, just the recently kidney recipients and the patient with a real advanced kidney disease. Doctors that were working in the clinics were started to see admitted patients with coronavirus disease too, and that was the way we could be able to to work and to, to assume all, all that new work. So, so when I when I uh, see the list of patients, so you guys uh, described uh, 51 patients being admitted in the hospital. This is one of the largest series um, published so far, which is really great. Um, are, are those patients, all patients that you guys took care of in chronic dialysis? I mean, so you were seeing patients in a clinic, in an outpatient clinic, and then you started to see those patients being admitted. Is that the situation also for transplant that you were taking care of patients already in the outpatient setting and then you started to take care of those in the hospital? Yes, that's the ritual. Usually in our, in our center, the patient with every pathology, maybe the chirurgical pathology, not, not, but the rest of the medical pathology are admitted with us and we take care of them. Mm -hmm. So the patient affected with coronavirus disease that needed to be admitted in our hospital for the first of the pandemic uh, was seen by our group. So did you find that you had to, um, did this cohort include predominantly admitted patients or did you have patients that, you know, you managed as an outpatient and, and didn't need to come in? Yeah, there was a there was a group that we managed from the clinic tele by, te with tele by the telephone or by virtual visits. Uh, those patients, uh, the majority of patients, it was like uh, I have exact, the exact number of patients we were following. Uh, I think it was yeah, 30, 33 patients during the peak of the pandemic uh, contacted to the hospital, to the clinic um, via telephone because of compatible symptoms. So those patients, uh, if they... If they were, if they had mild symptoms, they were they were managed as outpatients with every day or every other day uh, calls. We um, uh, well at that at the time, uh, hydroxychloroquine was being used. We gave them hydroxychloroquine. They came to hospital, pick up the drugs, and then they go back home. Uh, from uh, of that 33 patients, only 11 presented like worsening of symptoms so they come to a hospital ultimately only four of them were were admitted uh, and the four of them with with good clinical evolution at last so that was i don't know if i answered the question no uh yes you did because i think it's uh, you have a um in the paper there are i think 51 patients who were on dialysis sorry 51 patients in total and then 25 were on dialysis and 26 were transplanted and you know the default view is that they all end up being very very sick and they all end up in hospital uh, presenting acutely so I think it's interesting to, to hear that that is not your experience and there is a variety of presentations that these patients have so I think that's really uh, interesting actually thank you 
Yeah, I, I agree. And, and, and that shows the spectrum of disease in this population, right? I mean, what, what we will need to do as nephrologists to sort of stratify the risk and define according to the early signs and symptoms of the disease, which, which has not been clearly de de described in this population, right? I mean, you guys discussed that in the paper, that is very difficult because nobody knows what you expect in terms of um, clinical evolution of the disease in a population that we we probably feel, we all feel that they are more success, susceptible, but really it's a bit tricky to understand how this is going to go, right? Did you, did you feel that when you, when you saw the, the first patients? Uh, the anxiety of really not understanding very well how how the patients would would behave, and uh, do you think that this actually drove some of the decision the, the decisions to admit patients with with early signs of the disease? I think that for the first of the of the apparition of the disease, uh, we were really conservative with our patient. So every patient that came to the emergency emergency room and had uh, opacities in the chest X-ray. We decided to, to admit them. Maybe with the and, and nowadays we are restrictive, quite conservative, but maybe not as at that uh, point that we were in the, in the first of the of the pandemic. I agree with you that it's, in, it's really important to to make a, a, a good stratification of the of the patient and to treat in uh, according to to that. Yeah, yeah, I think like well, like at the beginning, like there's a paper, a very interesting point of view of Dr. Cunningham uh, in the Annals of Internal Medicine that he described as the worst days of our careers. And I think that that was uh, what we were all feeling. I mean, for me, it like, was like the, the thing that I was reading when I read his article, it's like, it's exactly what I, what I was feeling at the moment. So at the beginning of the pandemic, we, don't, we have a lot of anxiety. We didn't know how to manage these patients. We don't know if uh, we're very nervous to discharge patients or very nervous, on the other hand, to be managed with telephone calls. Uh, we didn't know if we were doing the right thing. So I think uh, anxiety was a very important issue at the time. And maybe uh, retrospectively, as Dr. Sevillano has already said, we did some, we were a little ex a bit exaggerated, we, uh, exaggerating with our, with, our, uh, with our attitude towards uh, admitting patients. But it was a new disease. Uh, we didn't understand uh, what was happening. And the first days, in, in fact, after we visited the patients and we gathered to, to comment the, the evolution of each patient, it's like we, we couldn't believe what we were, what we were, what we were living. Uh, a lot of deaths in the early days, like four or five deaths per day. It was like unbelievable thing. It was very sad times. And, and it's interesting, right? Because um, when you look at the way that you guys were treating this cohort of patients, um, you see that 92% of patients received hydroxychloroquine. And, and you mentioned just a while ago that uh, perhaps looking back, um, you would do it different. Do you think that this high proportion of patients treated with the protocols that you guys had at the moment had to do with this anxiety of, you know, trying to really uh, somehow treat this patient? And um, in the same line, do, do you feel that, um, that this needs to be changed now uh, in terms of what initial treatment you would offer, you know, a few weeks after the, the uh, beginning of the pandemic? Well, since the beginning of the pandemic, we have a special group, a committee that 
conformed by a lot of specialists involved in the care of, of COVID-19 patients, unit, infectious disease, internal medicine, rheumatology, and uh, uh, nephrology, of course, intensive care unit. So we gathered uh, every day. Uh, it was a small group, of course, uh, with, with uh, proper distancing and everything, but uh, we gathered every day to decide based on what was being published uh, from China and from Italy at the time about treatment. So treatment decisions were based on what we knew at the time that could be helpful, evidence-based. That was the evidence we had at the time. Uh, so it was uh, based on uh, local, our, our treatment was always based on, in our local protocol with the, with the addition, of course, of, or the difficulty of managing uh, immunosuppression in kidney transplant recipient that, of course, was, was based on our experience with, with previous, well, with with our experience with in managing disease, infectious diseases in, in, in kidney transplant patients. In this regard, we, we, we decided to that reduction was the way to go. But regard, uh, going back to the hydroxychloroquine uh, and the rest of the treatments, um, I, I, I think, of course, at the time, it was, I believe that we did the right thing because it was the information that we have. Uh, of course, today, with all the... The, the new published studies and the ones that are expected to be published in the in the next weeks of course we are we have changed our protocol we we have stopped the hydroxychloroquine three weeks ago uh, we we have well we stopped uh, interferon beta like two months ago also because of safety concerns. The, 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 the current protocol includes uh, only supportive management at the, uh, in, or, of course, if, if remdesivir uh, is available, that uh, in our case it is, uh, we use, uh, we, we, we think that remdesivir is the only thing, the only thing that actually could help and a very modest effect, in my opinion, I mean, in the, in the studies, in the recent studies. But we currently only are using supportive measures, remdesivir in some cases, and in uh, severe cases, uh, we use tocilizumab or anakinra. That's Basically, our protocol, of course, prophylactic anticoagulation. We have we have used it since the beginning, and we still use it as every. Uh, I mean, like we will do with every every other patient, not only with coronavirus uh, and indications of a normal patient that it's in the hospital. Yeah. So, um, and and I think you've just dis- described beautifully the evolution of management in a disease that, that we know nothing about, but how quickly we change and, and we move from hydroxychloroquine to remdesivir with everything else in the middle. Um, so, yeah, no, I think that's a really good description of what we were all battling with at the time. Um, I wonder if you n- noticed a, a difference in your... Um, transplant patients and your dialysis patients, um, particularly in with the treatment protocols that you might have used, did you treat them the same or did you try and change things a little bit? Because um, there were a couple of things that um, were of interest. One, that there was a little bit longer to diagnose um, the two cohorts um, and obviously immunosuppression plays a role in their management. So um, I guess it's first any decisions in that early phase treatment wise and then um, were there differences in treatment for the two, and has that persisted? Really, there were not really differences. We, uh, we adjusted the 
the treatment with the renal function that considered was necessary. But we use it the maybe with the patient with the kidney transplant recipients, start hydroxychloroquine, hydroxychloroquine most quickly in that moment. But maybe I think that it's the, the only difference between the two the two groups. I think that the treatment was similar and we follow with the our guidelines our local guidelines made by the by the what our committee. I know what do you think about the Dr. Trujillo. Yes, um, well, uh, the difference in the in the time to diagnosis, I think it's mostly influenced by the fact that hemodialysis patients are seen more often um, uh, every other day, so it was easier to to get to to them and to to diagnose them. Uh, we are closer to them. I think that's just what explains the difference in diagnosis time. Uh, regarding treatment, as Dr. Sevillano have already said, uh, we didn't make any special difference except for the immunosuppression, of course, in transplant patients. But yeah, uh, there was a little difference um, because at the time, tocilizumab was um, not universally available, let's say. So the committee decided uh, which patients were candidates to receive tocilizumab. And our dialysis patients, well, unfairly treated, I would say. So uh, a lot of them, because of their progno prognos prognostic uh, exp or expectancy of life, according to what, what the committee believes at the time, thought that they were not good candidates to receive tocilizumab or uh, other, other measures. So, and, and of course, remdesivir was not, was not available for them because the, the studies, the, the international studies, uh, excluded them because of their dialysis, uh, their dialysis situation. So what we did a little bit different with the hemodialysis patients what, was that we used steroids more often and maybe but maybe because of that because of the, the unavailability of of some treatments at the time this has changed in the evolution and i mean after the our paper was published uh, the things started to get better at the hospital uh, we we uh, admitted less patients and in general less patients were were being admitted at the hospital so and tocilizumab was well, we received more tocilizumab, uh, so we have more availability, and, and things changed. And uh, actually, I think if today we um, hypothetically will have to to treat uh, hemodialysis patients in a, with a severe uh, presentation, probably we we treated with tocilizumab, and that is different from what was at the time when we published our study. Oh, that's that's really a, an incredible story, right? And uh, I think um, this is happening all over the world. That the fact that we 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 need to make decisions based on resources available, and um, I think that's a that's a really difficult situation for us uh, clinicians to you know to make decisions based on resources. And in the same line, was there a point that um, that you guys had in your hospital limitation in the number of ICU beds to uh, treat patients? And did that affect some of the management of patients with chronic kidney disease? In our hospital, maybe uh, our national health service has been really stressed by, by the coronavirus disease. But maybe the ICU is the, the, the piece that has been really 
had uh, a bad uh, a bad time with with this crisis it's because uh, in our hospital we have around 30 or 45 uh, beds usually with the ICU and with coronavirus disease we have to they have to extend that bed they get around 100 beds because uh, we because they uh, transform a recovery the recovery room and uh, and almost uh, and the operating rooms in in ICU beds mm-hmm. uh, but after that, all that, is, uh, that all that things uh, we have uh, limited uh, the, the, the intensivist uh, people have really difficult to admit the uh, people that they have wanted to admit and to have a, a renal condition to have a, to be depending on uh, renal therapy uh, has been a limitation for the patient to be admitted with the ICU. It's true. Yeah, I think that um, this is a I think this is a worldwide problem in the nephrology world. And we felt like our patients didn't had uh, didn't have the same opportunities as other patients. I mean, to be in dialysis, to have a kidney transplant, is considered like very comorbid, <laughs> I think, by other specialties. And unfortunately, yeah, capacity constraints could have influenced, of course, the outcome of some of our patients, uh, including the ones that we described. In, in our work, of course, yeah, that I think that that that's a very important issue to talk about, and I think that we as nephrologists need to stand out and to, to I don't know if the answer is to learn how to use ventilators or to be more involved uh, in the in the um, in the management in, in, with ICU patients. Uh, that's not the case. In our case, the ICU manages chronic, um, I mean, renal replacement therapy when patients are with them. So I think that's a very, very important thing to mention and a great limitation for our patients, including the ones that that are included in the study. Capacity constraints at the peak of the pandemic really was a challenge for us because our patients were, it was very difficult to them to get advanced, advanced support. I see. So, so this is very interesting. So you're, you're telling us that the, the model of um, critical care in Spain actually is, is more centralized in the, in the figure of the intensive care doctor and the nephrologists have uh, less um, involvement in decisions, although the patients have kidney disease uh, like dialysis patients or transplant. This is uh, something that is completely different in different places. Um, I'll be glad to hear what Smita would say about the UK and, uh, and challenges there. But um, I hear a bit of uh, frustration in your voice, Nando, when you're mm-hmm. saying that, you know, this is my patients, you know, we see them all the time. And then when it comes to a critical time like that, the care is transferred to someone else that perhaps is not that used to the peculiarities of this population. Do you feel that this is something that that could have been done different if if decisions were in the hands of nephrologists? Well, uh, yeah, the answer is yes, because I think uh, a lot of patients, uh, especially young patients on on dialysis, of course, that I will offer them all the opportunities to, to, to attain an aggressive or intensive support, uh, regardless of their, of their pathology. Of course, uh, kidney transplant recipients, for me, there's no doubt about the aggressiveness I would, 
I would uh, I would apply. But uh, maybe in the hemodialysis patients, in some particular cases, because I think this is case to case basis. Uh, of course, some patients on hemodialysis with a lot of comorbidity burden maybe would not gain any any benefit from being uh, intubated and being on mechanical ventilation. I mean, I think it's case by case. Um, but I really think that in our case, and um, I'm not saying that in all Spain is, is the same, but I think in, in our particular case, uh, we felt like our patients were penalized. Yeah, in your paper, you described um, that um, of those that required hospital admission, 28% did um, die from direct complications um, of COVID-19. And I guess it comes back to, do you think that was COVID-19 or potentially the ability to provide them with access to to treatment? Um, I suspect it's not an easy question to answer. Yeah, it's not an easy question. Yeah, well, I really think that there are there were patients that uh, maybe with a more aggressive treatment uh, in a critical care unit, maybe they could be uh, they could they could, could do in, in other way. Maybe they could go in a way, but well, that was the situation, and we were really there were really difficult moments with the with the intensive care doctors for this reason. But well, you have to understand to the their situation. It's difficult for them to sometimes to say that a patient that is not uh, an elderly patient that have not is not uh, have no place for them in the critical care unit. I think we had similar um, similar challenges in the UK, but we were very fortunate because we were able to learn from uh, Italy and Spain, and we also certainly in the north we learned from London. Um, one of the um, things that was useful for us was, unfortunately, there was a um, an issue with renal replacement therapy consumables on intensive care units. So they ran out of continuous renal replacement therapy consumables. So they required nephrology support to deliver hemodialysis on the unit. So that is when we were called to the ICU to support them. Um, and I think that was really helpful for relationships uh, between critical care and nephrology, which um, we talk about lessons learned what lessons will we learn? And I think one of those is the value between maintaining a, a good relationship and understanding of the challenges, but helping. So I think us helping the ICU with hemodialysis instead of continuous renal renal replacement therapy helped. Um, I'm not sure if you had the same challenges there and whether they helped and whether they would help if you had a second peak, which hopefully nobody will. Hopefully. Uh, no, well, for yeah, of course, that, that, that's, very, that's a very interesting point of view. And I think, it, of course, we have, uh, as I addressed previously, we have to learn from this. And, and of course, relationships and putting in ourselves in the shoes of the other one, of the other specialties. I think that, that obviously is very helpful. And um, on, the, on the other hand, the um, uh, resources for renal replacement therapy in our ICU were always available. I mean, we didn't have problems with that, so they never called us. So fortunately, we didn't have, I mean, for the benefit of the patients, no problem in that regard. Now, shifting a little bit to the, or in the same line that we were discussing about renal replacement therapy in the ICU, I was impressed about the 
incidence of AKI in transplant patients, almost 70%. So this is uh, quite amazing. Do you feel that this is um, related to a particular susceptibility to AKI that transplant, kidney transplant patients have, or something related to uh, a bit of a later uh, diagnosis? I mean, you mentioned the potential advantages that you guys had uh, of being in contact with chronic dialysis patients being dialyzed three times a week. What, what do you, what's your feeling about this extremely high um, incidence of AKI in transplant patients? I think that is really for, for the susceptibility and the, and the treatment. No? The, the calcium inhibitors may be made that when a patient comes with a bad situation, you're in a situation, they make functional uh, acute kidney injury. We think there is a for that because in the follow-up of that patient, uh, we have not seen a current kidney disease. Uh, uh, all the patients recovered their uh, basal renal function. So we think that it was a functional uh, AKA. Well, I think that there's a lot of information uh, nowadays uh, about uh, acute kidney injury as part of the coronavirus disease presentation. I mean, I think uh, even in the general population, this has been reported as a common uh, common sign. Uh, It's it's relatively common to find uh, not not only uh, acute kidney injury, but also proteinuria, hematuria. Well, there's obviously the discussion about uh, if really is uh, a a particular entity uh, associated to coronavirus disease. I am personally not convinced to the day, but uh, could be the situation also. And uh, besides, I mean, I, mean it, I think AKI, it's common regardless of the population you study. And our, our uh, kidney transplant patients, of course, have certain, uh, certain features that uh, probably are risk factors for, for AKI, like uh, they have a single kidney. By definition, they have chronic kidney disease. The, kind of, the type of drugs they are taking, including obviously as Dr. Sevillano uh, said, um, calcineurin inhibitors. I, I mean, of course, there's, it's a high-risk population for acute kidney injury per se. So, uh, of course, it was a surprise to find uh, that, that high percentage. But on the other hand, if you see other, other series, it's, interest to, it's interesting to see that our patients really had very good evolution regarding kidney function. None of them required uh, renal replacement therapy, at least uh, throughout the observation period. There's a patient that it's included in, in the study that ev- eventually uh, required re- renal replacement therapy, but she recovered. She's now out of dialysis. But uh, in other series, um, especially from the United States, there's a lot of patients, uh, kidney transplant patients, that have required renal replacement therapy. I, I don't know well, I don't understand really the differences. Do you think the immunosuppression, I know it's difficult to say again, but do you think different immunosuppression regimes have different risks? Because uh, you have um, people on different regimes. Um, so I saw 92% on tacrolimus, but you know over 50% on MMF, but also use of mTOR inhibitors. Um, so, you know, do you have a, a view on the role of immunosuppression types on COVID-19? I think that we don't have enough information on our series of cases, not uh, as big as uh, to have the, the information to, to answer that, that question. The evolution of the patient with uh, every kind of immunosuppression was similar. So I, I think that we don't have the, the, question, the, the answer for that question right now. 
I don't think that there's particular uh, risk with any kind of uh, immunosuppression, I mean, above others. We think uh, that, well, if one thing, one important thing is that cyclosporine was at the beginning uh, investigated, and I think there's ongoing clinical trials because, uh, because of a possible role over in, in, in inhibition of the virus via cyclo, via the, the I forgot the, the name of the proteins, but I mean, uh, the, there was a potential role of, cyclo, of cyclosporine. In our case, uh, we, most of our patients are with, with the standard therapy with tacrolimus, and yes, uh, we have about 30% of our transplant patients with, with mTOR inhibitors for different indications, mainly because of neoplastic diseases or, or viral diseases, uh, viral infections like CMB or BK virus. Uh, BK virus. Uh, we didn't feel that there is a predisposition uh, of a certain uh, in, in drug to to worse clinical uh, to worse clinical outcomes. What we do believe is that reduction or immunosuppression reduction maybe is helpful. Uh, we we don't know, of course. This is a this is a question with no answer to date. But uh, we believe that the reduction uh, could have helped in, in some cases. Um, we, of course, decided to, to stop the anti-metabolite. This is a satyoprene or, or, or mycophenolate morphetil. And we continue prednisone, baseline prednisone on those patients who were on baseline prednisone. And we reduced tacrolimus dose. And, uh, well, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if we have answered your, your question, but... I, I mean, I don't think that there's a particular uh, drug associated with worse output. So now, now talking about the dialysis patients, um, what were the adaptations to the dialysis schedule that you guys did once patients were admitted? Something in particularly that you change in terms of anticoagulation or um, intense, how intense the dialysis is, the and also the decisions of putting patients into a more uh, continuous uh, treatment when they are chronic dialysis patients in the hospital? For our uh, chronic dialysis patient, uh, we usually use a, a, an habitual therapy of three, three days, four hours every day. Uh, but uh, for this patient, we reduce the, the dose of, of the modality for three hours every day. Almost it was really important, and, and we, saw, we saw that our patient uh, have uh, presented a reduction on the dry weight. It was interesting that maybe the patient was admit, admitted and in maybe in two days, three days, the patient had, uh, we need to, to, to increase the ultrafiltration in the in our session of dialysis. Maybe it, it was associated with the initial treatment that we started with, with lopinavir, ritonavir, that, uh, that they, they, because they have diarrhea associated with that medication. But I think that it was a factor, uh, import, uh, an important factor that was that they felt so bad that they didn't drink anything and they they don't eat anything and they really uh, have a, a really fast uh, loss of, of their weight. And the, maybe it was the most important things that, that we have to reduce the, the hours of dialysis. The, maybe because uh, we have only a, a room when we made the dialysis, so it was difficult to ask to make the dialysis of the, all the impact the, the admitted patients. And with that reducing reduce the time of dialysis we had, we, we were able to do it. And, uh, and that. 
An, an interesting point in the patient and admitted with the, with coronavirus disease that was that in in the I don't know if you have seen the see the same is that the, mm -hmm. during the session they feel really bad in sometimes we don't know if it's because they had a, a movement of, of the interleukin or something like that but they really they were really really bad I don't know so I don't know if you have seen that in your your country too yeah we have. We have observed a very poor tolerability uh, to uh, intermittent hemodialysis. And uh, on the other hand, we, well, I'd just like to add that we had to adjust to a lot of things when, when the pandemic began regarding uh, the, the dialysis positions because uh, there we had a lot of positive patients, admitted uh, positive patients that we needed to dialyze. We didn't uh, have enough uh, enough boxes to, to 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 do our hemodialysis treatments, so we um, we closed our our kidney transplant um, unity that we normally use to manage the immediate post transplant patients. It's a six bed place that we have additionally to our to our floor, and we we had to of course transplant. The transplant program was stopped. And we use those beds to, to dialyze our chronic dialysis patients. And uh, yeah, we, mm, what we do is we reduce their time, as the, uh, the, the, the normal time of therapy to, from four hours to three hours, as Dr. Subiano has said. And we have to, we have to adjust uh, a lot their weights also, as Dr. Subiano has said. Uh, we didn't know. Uh, we didn't see a lot of uh, problems with coagulation. I think I, I know there's, this is a thing that has been said and published even. Uh, but particularly in intermittent hemodialysis uh, patients, uh, that's totally different from hemodiafiltration in the ICU because it's a continuous therapy. Of course, we didn't notice a particular tendency to procoagulation. You've gone through COVID and hopefully it won't be coming back, uh, but I'm sure you've made some significant changes to your service as a direct result. So how does your unit look differently? What things have you done to reduce the risk of outbreaks, more transmission? You've described the treatment protocols, but also, you know, your dialysis program, your hemod um, your transplant program. I'm just interested in what where you are now. Well, um yeah, a lot of things have changed. To start with, the things are very slowly coming back to normal. We have very few patients admitted. I mean, generally, not, not COVID patients. And we have adjusted, um, yeah, a, a lot of things. So first of all, our clinic still has a telephonic visiting. We haven't turn to the uh, with uh, to the normal uh, clinic with where the patient comes to the hospital or 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 etc so we we're still managing all our clinic patients including kidney transplant patients by phone of course there are special situations where they come to the hospital but in general we are still managing tele uh, telephonic uh, uh, telephonically the the, the, the clinic and we maybe are going to keep it that way until until the summer passed. Regarding dialysis, well, we had to uh, restart, or we have we have restarted our kidney transplant program uh, two weeks ago. And in fact, uh, there have been three transplants in the last two two weeks. 
they're okay <laughs> and they're they're doing they're doing fine. Uh, so we need we needed to use our, again that uh, place that were that had that has been used to to treat dialysis patients uh, during the the peak of the pandemic. So we have now a special place in our in the place where normally the chronic hemodialysis patients do their treatments. Uh, there's a, a special uh, place to dialyze patients with COVID-19 with different entrances and uh, only one nurse for them. Um, so we have changed that. Of course, ambulances, it's a problem. So we have to put ambul uh, individual ambulances in, in where, where normally uh, they're shared. Uh, and uh, for the rest, I think uh, in dialysis, of course, uh, now, and I think this is, uh, this is the case in, in, in every hospital that has that has passed through this horrible situation. We are um, uh, other, we have a lot of more amount of care with wearing appropriate uh, equipment, masks, etc. I think hygiene has also improved, and the way we manage catheters, etc. Especially nurses. For the rest, uh, the floor is now wor um, working normally. Um, we have at, at the peak of the pandemic, we had like for uh, well almost all the hospital was for covid-19 patients and now we have only two floors uh, not nephrology nephrology is now working normally but uh, internal medicine floors and uh, that are used that they normally have like four to six floors so two of them are now used to 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 admit uh, coronavirus patients one good thing is now it's easy to get on the elevators because there's not a lot of people on the hospital <laughs> Yes, nowadays there are a uh, special circuit for patients uh, that are going to be admitted in the hospital. They have to make a, a PCR test of coronavirus uh, 72 hours uh, before to be admitted. If you don't have that test, you, are not, you can't be admitted in the hospital. And the visits of, for the patient are really limited. So the patient, uh, there are only some situations, patients with uh, a really bad situation, or patients that, have, that need a really near uh, care that they the, the family can uh, is able to or, uh, is um, have uh, the I don't I don't know how to say can the, fam the family can have to the hospital the other people of the hospital is not uh, have no visits it's really important for us to to try to that the viewers don't come here to the hospital too again it's good. So this is this was was really great, guys. Um, maybe w one thing that I was thinking here while we were chatting is is that uh, in the beginning this was about a, a paper, but the, we ended up talking about the life of a nephrologist and uh, um, your frustrations and your anxieties about the thing. And I guess this is this is a little bit of the human side of publications, right? It's about uh, sharing experiences, and I think you guys did extremely well. The paper is full of, um, you know, it's full of uh, those feelings, and I, I, I think it, it's really great that you managed to do it. My, my final question is, I mean, why, why did you decide to publish that, and uh, how, how did you see the impact of your paper uh, after, after you, it was published? When all of this started, we, we felt loose. We felt loose because we don't know how was the evolution of the patient with kidney disease affected with coronavirus disease. 
actually uh, we only have that paper uh, from China that said that paper that patient in in the hemodialysis has a good evolution with the with the disease. And our uh, feeling was that was not true. That patient has a really high uh, rate of events of, of, of fatal events. So we so we we. We thought that it was important to, to transmit it to the people that uh, was not under the pandemic uh, in that moment. That they have to be careful because uh, the patient are, don't go don't go in a good way. So uh, that was that was the, the reason that we 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 think that it was important to translate to to send our uh, the message that uh, our experience to the to the rest of the of the world. Yeah, I think that Smita just said very a very important thing, and is that. In the UK, they were uh, learning from what was going on in Italy and China and Spain. And we wanted, uh, we had the feeling that, um, for example, uh, of course, our connection with Latin America is very important. We share a lot of things. So um, adding to Dr. Sevillano, we were, we, were, um, we, we, were, we were receiving messages at the time from people over there doc and other nephrologists we, we know friends, etc., that were worried because of the situation. So we, in addition to the scientific interests, uh, as Dr. Sevillano has said, that we had on the sharing with the, uh, the nephrology community our experience, uh, we felt like a certain responsibility with uh, people that were expecting the, that were not, uh, that were not already on the pandemic, but that way they were afraid because it, they knew they, it was coming to them. So we felt like um, we wanted to help people uh, that were um, uh, obviously were going to have the same problems that we were facing at the moment. So we wanted to share with our experience with other regions of the world that at the time were not affected by COVID-19. Yeah, well, and you guys really did a great job. You know, thank you so much for sharing the experiences uh, in the manuscript, but also sharing this um, additional information with us today here. Um, I really appreciate that. I think we will get we're getting to the 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 end of time here, and I know you guys are busy and need to go back to your patients. And uh, this is something that uh, we 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 respect and appreciate. Um, Smita, any final words from your end? Uh, no, thank you very much for uh, for joining the podcast today. But also, I just want to reflect back what you said, Nando. Um, the work that you did did help us in the UK so I think your mission to help others was uh, was a good one and an effective one and I think it will continue to support teams um, that will continue to grapple with COVID so thank you well it was really fun thank, thanks a lot guys and um, I hope we can meet again and maybe face to face when the when life gets back to normal whenever this will be I'll be happy to um, to have some coffee or uh, wine or whatever you guys like to have and just uh, have a chat face to face. Thanks so much. Wine would be better. Wine would be better. <laughs> I agree. Wine is always better. <laughs> All right. Okay. okay. Thanks a lot for the, for the invitation. It's been a pleasure for us.